at the interview we have here. I guess back in the beginning you were introduced to the guitar by your father, right? That's true. Yeah, when I was about five years old, I first started playing a few chords, and my father showed me a few chords to play, and, and that was a hobby in those days until I was about 15, and then I decided to get serious about it and started working local clubs in Arizona. And uh, was there you met this guy, Al Casey? Uh, oh, you... yeah, yeah, and uh, learned a lot from him, and uh, we worked together for, oh, two or three years in the early days, so writing songs, and... Uh, and he wrote one of my first big hits called Ramrod. Oh, okay. Actually, that's the one we have to queued up. But before we get to Ramrod, it's sort of an interesting story. I'm sure anybody familiar with music, and especially some of the country music, is familiar with Lee Hazelwood, who's sort of a giant in the industry as far as writing and playing. Maybe you could tell a short story about the time you met Lee Hazelwood when he was a DJ on KCKY. Well, at the time, I was just going to high school, and they were playing country records out there, and I was working country clubs as a musician, and the new records that would come out would sometimes be sent to the station. They'd, well, they'd send them all to the station, but sometimes they'd send an extra one or two, so I used to go out there and <laughs> and pick up those extra ones to take home and learn myself. It was great. Yeah, I certainly have to try that. You also li listened, I guess, to uh, some of Chet Atkins' guitar playing. Oh, definitely. Chet Atkins, Merle Travis, they were our heroes then in the, those days with the country feel anyway. And uh, fantastic players. I've since got to know both of them quite well. And uh, as you know, Merle just passed away here recently. Right. And uh, an era gone. Of course, Chet's still with us, and I'm hoping one of these days I might get to uh, get in the studio with him. Okay, and maybe we could move on now to uh, some of your first recordings. I guess the first one was done in the year 58. I guess you had three or four big hits around that time. Ramrod, Rebel Rouser, Moving and Grooving, Up and Down, The Walker, and the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah, we started with Moving and Grooving early in 58, and then that did fairly well in the charts, so encouraged everybody to go back and try again. So we did and came up with Rebel Rouser the second time. And Ramrod, Cannonball, The Lonely One. We're going to be doing all those, incidentally, tonight, speaking of all these songs. Down at Wolfgang's, we're going to, in San Francisco, we're going to be playing all these. And I've got some fantastic players with me. Yeah, I, I heard about I was very surprised to hear that. Uh, was it, is it Robin Ford's playing with you? Yes, Robin Ford is going to be here tonight with us, and tomorrow night, too. And. Uh, Boy, he is a fantastic player. We rehearsed yesterday, and I was completely <laughs> knocked out with what he's doing. Yeah, and he... Tony Hazar on drums, Robin Sylvester on bass. Let's see, Tim Gorman on keyboards. Now, Tim just finished up the Who's last tour recently. All these guys got their own bands and are fantastic. And, of course, Steve Douglas on sax. He's been he's been with you for a while, has he not? Yeah, he's on uh, some of the original records, like Peter Gunn and oh, let me see what else was he? Forty Miles of Bad Road, he was on, and several of the early things that we did. Yeah, he's a fantastic player. He's got his own album out now, which I'm guesting on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So things turn around. 
In fact, after we get to Ramrod, we could start talking about when you started to come back and play at the clubs here and be received after a while. There's a whole bunch of musicians, especially down in LA, LA which just dropped everything they were doing and ran to join you. Okay, we're going to play Ramrod. Is there anything you'd like to say about it before we put it on? Not that I can think of, except that if you're coming over tonight, Bob, what do you hear what Robin Ford does? <laughs> he takes his solo in this song. Okay, Come great. On. Here we go with Ramrod by Dwayne Eddy here on KFJC. That was Ramrod by Dwayne Eddy, recorded, let's see, was it about 58, June of 58. Yep. One of the things I'd like to talk about for just a second is the fact that when the British invasion hit, I guess about 1965, yeah, six, four, I think it was. Four, okay. Started, Bob. I was somewhat of a good I remember it well. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, <clears throat> that, that's my high school years and everything sort of foggy. But at that time, quite a few players like yourself and others had took sort of a hit on the chin. In fact, I was even talking, I don't know if you ever heard of Irma Thomas, but she's from New Orleans, Soul Queen of New Orleans, and she was the original one to do things like Pain in My Heart. Yeah. yeah. You know, and the Rolling Stones first big hit, but never got credit for it, of course. And then they came along, and a lot of people forgot all about the American artists and start to have this love of British musicians. Yeah, which has never stopped, and that's <laughs> fine too, because they sat over there in England a long time and watched the charts filled with American artists, about 80%, and only 20% of the British artists had chart records in their own country. So when 64 came along, I thought it was only fair that it turned around the opposite way, and they got to have about 80% of our charts. and in the United States, and and American artists took a back seat for a while, which actually worked out well for me personally because I'd been on the road constantly for over five years, and I was getting just a little bit jaded and a little bit exhausted, <laughs> generally speaking, and so it was it was quite nice for me just to stay home and and do some. Re 
recording now and then. You had a, a couple of hits that were made it over in Europe, actually, that didn't, speaking of Europe and America, that didn't quite make it over here. I guess one was, I can't remember what year in the 70s, but it was about 70. Well, yeah, 1975, Tony McCauley produced a, a record over there in London, and it was a worldwide hit, and everywhere except the United States, they finally wound up not releasing it here because... Oh, various reasons. Tony left the label and was going to produce somebody else and that type of thing, so they wouldn't have any follow-up from me, so they decided not to go ahead and release it here. But it was called Play Me Like You Play Your Guitar. Right. We're going to go to Peter Gunn next, but before we get, I get there, and speaking about your guitar, maybe some of the guitarists in the uh, audience would uh, like to know a little bit. Uh, there was actually a whole model that was... Was it a Gretsch Hall body or Guild? I forgot again. We just... Guild guitars made a Dwayne Eddy model, yeah. And they first started in about 1960, 62, somewhere in there. And they, they made them and sold them for a number of years, and then I guess they stopped in about the, in sometime in the 70s. And then this last year, they had quite a few requests and people asking after them, so they decided to make a limited edition, about 25 or 30 of them they've made. And... They're a fantastically well-made guitar, and they've got the original Dearman pickups, and which, which I which I like quite quite a bit. Do they have do they use the Bixby bridge on that, or yeah, yeah, the Bixby vibrato and bridge, and uh, yeah, the the vibrato that uh, you used, I, I I guess you know the cuts a little bit better than I do, but on on some of the cuts, the way you use the vibrato is absolutely incredible. That if some people want to just sit back and listen, because that style is, is coming in again on how to use a bar that uh, certainly uh, is a lesson when they can listen to your records for a demonstration. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's something I've always done. I fell in love with it all those many years ago, and it's I, I, I would hate to think of playing a guitar that didn't have it on, you know. It's fantastic. Okay, well, let's go to Peter Gunn now, and uh, we'll come back and talk a little bit more. But let's go to Peter Gunn now, and I want to remind everybody that uh, listening to KFJC 89.7 Los Altos Hills, and this is the tune that Dwayne will open his show with at Wolfgang's.
Well, that was the first record I heard by Dwayne Eddy. That was Peter Gunn. It also happened to be one of my favorite TV shows. In fact, I thought not only was music great back those days, but I loved TV. And uh, up next on the turntable is a song which Dwayne demonstrates some of the great use of that bar he had on his guitar. But before we get to that, maybe you could talk about w when you started to come back, some of the people who were behind you, like... I know Ry Cooter dropped everything he did and ran over to play, you know, with you in L.A. Maybe you could just talk a little bit how some of those uh, gigs got together down there. Was that at a Valley Club called the Potato? Yeah, the Baked Potato. Baked yeah, potato. Don Randy owns that, and uh, he's a great keyboard player, and had worked on a lot of my sessions in the, you know, 60s and all that, early 60s, and uh, he's... He said, why don't you do a show at my club? And I said, well, I don't really have a group to get it done. Uh, he said, I'll get a group to get it for you. And I said, okay. So he called a week later, and I'd almost forgotten about it. And he said, he says, well, he says, i got a group to get it. I said, well, who have you got? And he said, I only got Hal Blaine on drums. And Hal, of course, is one of the most recorded drummers ever and been on more hit records than anybody. And all through the 60s and 70s, he... And uh, he says... I got Steve Douglas on sax, and of course Steve I'd known for 25 years because he did the early records. And he says, and Ry Cooter wants to come, and uh, he's going to bring his bass player John Garnishay. So uh, I said, well, that's fantastic. Let's do it then. So we set it up, and uh, and that's what happened. We did the baked potato a couple times, and. Uh, and we came up to San Francisco and did the Keystone Clubs, went to Santa Cruz and did the club there. Do you remember the name of it? I well, see, the, the Catalyst. Yeah, the Catalyst, that's right. How could I forget that? Silly me. Well, Lots we of pretty that. young girls there with hands. Yeah. <laughs> and it just was fantastic. We just had a great time. And I had so much fun, I decided to get back and do this some more. And so... Even though I've got slightly different groups, Steve, and Steve uh, Douglas is still with me, but the rest of the guys are different. I found out as I was working around last year that I could use these different groups and it still come out the same, and it's just fantastic. I'm just having a great time. And also, for people who are interested in Dwayne Eddy's guitar style, besides seeing him, you're playing tonight and tomorrow night? Yeah, tonight. The one show tonight at 8 o'clock at... Wolfgangs and two shows tomorrow night, eight and eleven. If the if they are interested, they could also pick up the newest magazine of Guitar Player. The June issue has Rock Guitar Pioneers and has Dwayne Eddy right there in their front, along with James Burton, who looks real. Have you seen the cover yet? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's an old picture of James and myself. Everybody, yeah. those pictures are all the old ones that they put on the cover. Yeah, it's the, the the cover alone is is one of my favorite covers I've ever seen on that magazine because those those four pictures are great. They yeah, ought, they ought to give... Barry and uh, Bo Diddley is on there with us. And, yeah. uh, James and I go way back too. Uh, well, all those guys and myself. I worked with Chuck Berry. Uh, first thing I ever did in 1958 back in New York, and uh, went to the Brooklyn Fox, and he was on the show, and we jammed a little bit upstairs after the <laughs> show, and had a great time with him. And Bo Diddley, the same thing. He was, I met him in 1958 and fell in love with what he does. He, he's more fun to watch work than anybody, I think. And, of course, James Burton, 
I've used on several of my records during the years, taking solos here and there, and he's just a fantastic player. Did when you were playing around in 1958, was were you thought? I know I know the records did sell, but as far as the other players, were they aware of you know what you were doing? And was it easy to you know start jamming with them? You know, and was it a sort of a what's the word, uh, sort of respect passed back and forth, or did they not really know exactly where you were coming from until they heard you play? Oh, yeah, well, in those days it was all new, and uh, everything was different. And uh, uh, while well, I did sit down and jam with Chuck Berry and, and with Bo upstairs in the dressing room, that was more to kill time than to find out what we could do and stuff, and we never thought of working together on stage all together, which would have been fun to do. We all did our own thing and did our hits, and there used to be 10, 15 acts on those shows sometimes, so you did your 10, 15, 20 minutes, and that was it. You know, <laughs> Run out, do your hits, and get off, and on with the next act. I saw one of, I saw one of those crazy shows. It usually had some DJ doing the announcing, and, right. and they were incredible. I mean, the people, they would pile in and out of there. They quit, the people who were dealing with equipment must have had a hernia by the time the thing was over because they were well, just... Except we didn't have all that equipment then, mm -hmm. Bob. We just had, you know, a little amp and a <laughs> guitar and a bass amp and... Well, you had a little magnetone? A set of drums, you know. I mean, nothing like they have today. We didn't even have roadies in those days. Really? <laughs> you got around your hands. We used to carry it ourselves, throw it in the back of the station wagon and go. Yeah. You had four or five guys and uh, all of our equipment in one station wagon in those days. You had a little magnetone tone amp. Did you do any any adjustments to that or your or your guitar, you know, like rewiring or anything like that? Yeah, the magnetone was all rewired, and the more powerful setup was wired into it so that it sounded a lot clearer and a lot better than the stock magnetone. And that's what I used on Rebel Rouser and all those early records. Okay, speaking the of that, stock, they used the Chet Atkins Gretsch in those days. And that was before Gill started making the Dwayne Eddy model, and so it was all pretty much stock, except for the amp was juiced up a little bit and a little more powerful and clearer. And I put a JBL 15-inch speaker in it, and, which didn't come with it. No, no certainly not. No, <laughs> <laughs> not even close. No, not even. Uh, that was that was pretty close to state of the art at the time. Just putting that in there, it also it gave it a, a a real sort of modern sound. I mean, if someone would listen to the the sound of the amp back then and today, there's not as much difference as, as the the old amps did. Almost almost put it into overdrive a little. Yeah, uh, nowadays you can go out and buy an amp right off the floor of a music store that has just that that good of a sound. You know, that used to take them a lot of work to rewire and everything to get. Now you can just buy it that way. It's, I'm using a Fender Showman now, one of the new ones, and it's just fantastic, the sound. Yeah. It's just stock. Yeah. Buy it in any music store. It's sort of funny, you know, it's, it's the way that science goes. You know, you, you, you sort of work yourself to death trying to figure out just what to do, and then, you know, years later, someone's going to put a chip that's going to do the whole thing in or something yeah. else. Well, that's like recording when you started. 1958, stereo had just come in, and uh, we had that, but we only had three tracks. So we had to get it all onto those two tracks and save one for the sax overdub, and that's the way we worked. And we'd work all day sometimes trying to get a particular little sound on a guitar or 
drums or something, and I take three or four hours, and now they just twist a knob and it's there. 